I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I did something that I, I don't do. We, well, we always go to a movie on Thanksgiving or, or Christmas. That's kind of our thing. Disney's got something out. I saw Coco the other day. It was great. I don't know why I'm getting teary-eyed at a cartoon, but it's awesome. And, uh, and then my wife made this really harmless comment on Thursday uh, between 5 and 6 o'clock. She said, let's go to Kohl's. And, um, and so, <laughs> listen... We were going to Kohl's, I thought, because my boy's feet continue to grow and there was a chance that they had shoes there. My wife's feet are not growing, however. She was looking at shoes as well. That's a different deal for a different day. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. But I walked into Kohl's, and I don't know if you're experiencing this, if you're watching movies yet, Christmas movies yet. We started like Halloween. If you're if you're like, got the music playing, I've had the free Sirius XM going on lately. So it's the Holly Jolly station or whatever they call it. I've been listening to that thing. But I, when I walked into Coles, I promise you, here's the song that I heard. Here it goes. Listen. I mean, it was, it was amazing. People, people clutching Keurig machines. Like... I don't know what kind of deal they got, but I can promise you they weren't giving them away. But I mean, the line in Kohl's, you know how Kohl's is, there's, there's cashiers on both sides of the store. The line started on each side of the store and like met in the middle. I had never seen anything like it in my life. Why are we here on Thursday for crying out loud? And who opened these stores? Why aren't these people home with their families? Well, it's because people like us showed up to shop. And so look at shoes and Keurig machines and all these kinds of different things. But I mean, the season gets going and it gets going in a hurry. And it just moves faster and faster and faster. And I don't know if you're listening to like Andy Williams or Nat King Cole or Bean Crosby or Justin Bieber. But when you are listening and thinking about Christmas music, this is the song I want you to think of. Here we go. This is it. That starts the season right there. That, that, that begins it. But there's something about this song. Some, okay, cut the music. Alabama fan in charge of the music behind me. Go ahead. What's going on? The, uh... Now, see, that joke didn't work at nine, but it worked at this one. That was awesome. That's so good. Oh, man. Just tell them. Just tell your family who's still in town. Don't worry. He's not the real pastor. It's okay. <laughs> you know, when Beethoven Symphony Number no. 5 first played... On December 22nd, see, I told you it was a Christmas song. On December 22nd, 1808, in a theater in Vienna, the conductor stood up and he tapped the baton onto that platform, onto that music stand, whatever it may be. And the room is full of people moving about, rustling about. There's all kinds of noise going on. There's There's all kinds of little white noise in the background, just the rustle, rustle, rustle. And then that conductor beats that baton. And then you hear those first four notes, those famous, maybe infamous first four notes that took everyone's breath away. But on the page, they are not the first four notes of the song. Even from the beginning, In 1808, Beethoven's first note of his fifth 
symphony is actually a rest. It's an eighth rest. Now, for those of you that don't know a whole lot about music, maybe some of you took choir or band or something at some point, you know, a rest can be a quarter note. It can be a half note. It can be a whole note. It can be a combination of whole notes, create a whole measure of silence, if you would. But when we think of Beethoven's fifth and we think of that, dun, 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 we think of that powerful music that begins, would you ever have guessed that it actually begins with complete silence? And why would he do that? You see, only in complete silence can you have what's called ear cleaning. Now, it doesn't involve a Q-tip, but all the people moving around, milling about, and there was something in order to have the greatest impact of the song, Beethoven wrote in even the quickest of rest. You see, you cannot fully appreciate the music unless you first pause in silence. Now we're in a series on the miracles of Jesus. We've been in a series since February studying the life and teachings of Jesus. And I need to tell you something right off the bat before we get into this miracle today. I'm one of those people that believes that miracles still happen. I'm one of those people who believes that God is still at work in the world. I'm one of those people who believes God is still speaking. We are just not always listening. Bishop N.T. Wright says it this way. I love this. He says, miracle is not a biblical category. The God of the Bible is not a normally absent God who sometimes intervenes. This God is always present and active, often surprisingly so. And from the time of walking with Adam and Eve in the garden to speaking to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on and on it goes. What we know from the scripture is this is a God who speaks. This is a God who wants to speak to his people. He wants to have a personal relationship. He doesn't want to just listen to you in prayer, although he's invited that, but he wants it to be a dialogue. He wants to speak to you and he wants you desperately to hear from him. And if you're here today and you say, I desperately need to hear from him, then the challenge, the encouragement today is take a moment and be silent and you will. This miracle that we're looking at today is in Luke chapter seven. You can turn your Bibles if you would or open your app or whatever you're using today, but look at Luke chapter seven, because as I was studying and praying this week, there were a couple of thoughts that were coming to my mind that I felt like the spirit of God wanted us to try to connect today. And they're actually both found in Luke chapter seven. And Luke chapter seven has an element, has a moment that doesn't appear anywhere else in scripture. It's actually a reaction from Jesus that's only from this story. He never has this kind of response to anyone else other than what happens in these circumstances. So we're gonna look at a lot of Luke seven and I'll explain some of it to you. And then we're gonna go through the first 10 verses in one story right now. Let me read the first five and here's what it says. After he had finished all these sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, and the servant was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. 
So Jesus has actually just finished teaching the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at that for four months as a church earlier this year, and it feels like we were still skimming a lot of it. There's so much to take in, and, and people have taken in so much about loving their enemies, about prayer, about fasting. Jesus changed prayer when he said, Our Father who art in heaven. I mean, he made it personal. He made God a loving and personal God who wants us to come to him and understand him as a loving Father. He gave the Beatitudes. He did all the things that he did on this message on the hill side of the Sea of Galilee. And now he's walking down the hillside to a town called Capernaum. Now this we believe was his home base for his adult ministry life. This was, he had a residence there or he had some people at least who would let him stay there, whatever it was. He was back in this place over and over again. And as he's coming down the hillside, a few people are following him. He's getting to the city and a group of Jewish elders come to him and ask him a favor. See, it's interesting when you Slow this story down. I mean, you can read the five verses. You can read all 10 verses. We'll go through the rest in just a moment. But when you slow this story down, it it has a lot of interesting details. It's not just a quick read. These elders have come to Jesus asking for a favor. These elders would not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. These guys would have a problem with just about everything that Jesus has said on the Sermon on the Mount. But yet, they want a favor. And... More than just a favor, they want it for a Roman centurion. Now, you probably know this, but during this time in history, Israel is under Roman occupation. It's political oppression carried out by military people. And this centurion is a Roman military officer who would have been in charge of anywhere from 80 to perhaps 300 people. He would have been one of the officers in the legion who would be responsible probably for this whole area around Galilee. He is probably the enforcer of everything that's happening on behalf of Rome in this area. And to be a centurion, that means he was doing, he was willing to do anything and everything that Rome has asked for him. So these Jewish elders representing Jewish people who are constantly at odds with the Romans, not only are they coming to this man who they don't believe is Messiah and asking him to do a favor, a supernatural favor, but they're also asking them to do it for a Roman. And they're asking them to do it for a Roman who has a servant who is sick. Now we'll get to it in a moment, but the Greek word in verse seven for the servant leads us to believe that it's actually a a, a boy. It's a child who's under the centurion's care. And for some reason, this centurion has great favor with this boy or for this boy. Maybe he sees him as having plenty of potential. Maybe these Roman elders see him as being the link to causing stability or creating stability in the next generation. Whatever it is, they've come to Jesus. Do they want to do a favor for this centurion? Yes. Do they want Jesus to do that? Yes. Do they want him to heal this little boy? Yes. And we can vouch for this guy because he built us our synagogue. Pretty smart guy that would do something that would be seen as a kindness for the people of Capernaum so that he could rule over them. Now, what happens next gets a reaction from Jesus that's exclusive to this story. Verse six says, Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Watch this. 
For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say, go, and he goes. I say, come, and he comes to another servant. I say, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowds that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus had healed the servant boy. Now, this is the only time that Jesus marvels at someone's faith. He didn't marvel when Peter got out of the boat. Although it was amazing. But that's not the response it got. He didn't marvel at the woman who reached out to touch the hem of his garment, who had an issue of blood, who wanted to be healed. This word marveled is often used for how people responded to him. It's used 44 times in the New Testament. Majority of the time it's how people respond to Jesus. This is the only time that Jesus responds like this and he responds this way to a Roman. The word means astonished out of one's senses. This is mind blown, stop you in your tracks, awe-inspiring in this moment, even God-inspiring faith that this centurion has put on display and he has not even met Jesus. He has just heard reports of what he has done. Why did Jesus react like this? Why is he awe-inspired by this man's faith? In life or death circumstances, in the middle of life or death circumstances, this centurion presumes something to be true about Jesus. He says, Jesus, I get it. I get what it's like to be in charge. I get what it's like to be in authority. I can tell people to do things and they will do them for me. It doesn't matter what I ask them to do. They will do it. Jesus you don't even have to come to the house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. The Roman centurion believed this, that there was not a single thing under heaven that could not be brought under the authority of Jesus. Not a single thing under heaven that could not be brought under the authority of Jesus. And if what the writer of Hebrews says is true, that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, then the good news is today, there's not a single aspect of your life that cannot be brought under the authority of Jesus. Doesn't matter what you're dealing with today. Disease can be brought under the authority of Jesus. Cancer can be brought under the authority of Jesus. Your job situation, your financial situation can be brought under the authority of Jesus. Don't tell them this, but your boss can be brought under the authority of Jesus. Your relationships can be brought under the authority of Jesus. Your future can be brought under the authority of Jesus. Your addiction, your pain, your grief, no matter what it is you're dealing with, can be brought under the authority of Jesus. There's not a single area of your life that can hide from the healing power of Jesus. And this guy knew it without even knowing him. Awe-inspiring faith is faith that believes that Jesus is in charge 
even when it might look like he's not. Awe-inspiring faith looks beyond circumstances. It looks beyond problems and knows that those problems are not greater than the problem solver. Awe-inspiring faith doesn't quit. It doesn't focus on missed opportunities or our own shame or our own mistakes or our own guilt. The centurion is not even standing there, most likely because of, of his guilt and shame or just the sheer optics of what it might look like if he showed up in the presence of Jesus. And yet he demonstrates awe-inspiring faith. Awe-inspiring faith sees without seeing. Hebrews 11 verse one says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The enemy will try to distract you. He will try to push your focus onto other circumstances. He will distract you to the point of numbness and spiritual blindness. But awe-inspiring faith takes moments on a regular basis to clean out our ears, to open our spiritual eyes. And that is where healing begins. And if I could give you the gift of mindfulness, a moment of mindfulness today, just to remind you of this, I want to tell you no matter who you are, where you're coming from, what issues you're dealing with today, your circumstances are not in charge. Your antagonists are not in charge. Hang on. You are not in charge. And that's good news. Jesus is in charge. And that is the mustard seed that is the beginning of awe-inspiring faith. A little time, a little time goes by in Luke chapter seven. And Jesus now has gone with his disciples to the west southwest of the Sea of Galilee, and he's in a little town called Nain. And I want you to read this as a group this week, but I'll just give you kind of the Cliff Notes version. We'll point out one verse here in a second. But Jesus comes upon this town and he's on his way to it. And as he approaches the gate of this town, there is a funeral procession. And it's very clear. Jesus, of course, would know with his, his sovereignty and his, his being God. But it's pretty clear to everyone what's going on in this moment. There's a woman who is weeping and, and wailing. And the people of the town would know her as a widow. And now in this coffin is her only son. And so Jesus is coming by and Luke seven tells us that Jesus goes and he puts his hand on the coffin and he says out loud, young man, I say to you, arise. And verse 15 says, the dead man, by the way, this is Luke chapter seven. Luke was a doctor, confirmation, the dead man. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And everyone there said it was the best funeral they had ever been to, ever. I mean, but this is amazing. I love the idea that Jesus puts his hand on the coffin and says, get up. The guy gets up and just starts jabbering like he's got things to say. I want to know what he said. Luke doesn't tell us, but like, come on. I mean, what was the first thing on that guy's mind? That was amazing. Mom, who was crying, she's really crying now. We don't know what to do with mom. Mom's passed out. Jesus says she'll be fine. I'm not even going to deal with her right now. I mean, it's amazing all that's happening in this moment. Can you imagine being in that scene and the glory that you would give to Jesus in that moment? But there's two guys here. In Luke 7, this is amazing. There's two guys, they're followers of John the Baptist, Jesus' first cousin. You remember John the Baptist? They see this miracle 
of a man dead being raised to life. And they go and tell John. John sends them back with a question. This is fascinating. And when the men, verse 20, when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you. Your first cousin, I think you remember him. Here's the question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? There's gotta be a little bit of humor in this, at least how I read it, okay? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. I think Luke is finding a little bit of humor in this too. There's three words tucked in the middle of these verses. In that hour. In that hour means as these two knuckleheads are asking the question, are you the one? Are we expecting someone else? In that hour, he's healing people. Can you imagine? Somebody who's blind walks up and Jesus gives them sight and they say, yeah, we have a question about that. That resurrection thing, we we have that. And Jesus is like, hang on a second. And somebody comes up with a disease and he heals them. And Luke is like saying, in that hour, do you guys realize all of the things that are going on here? And if I'm Jesus, I'm thinking, what else is it that you need me to do? I mean, John the Baptist, for some reason, has questions in this moment. John, who baptized him who declared the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus could have answered them any host of different ways. But in verse 22, I want you to see what he says. He answers them and he says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Now, in the second half of what Jesus has said, he is alluding to a couple of different scriptures in Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah says that these things that Jesus is doing at this time, these are the things that the Messiah will be doing. So John would recognize that language. So would everyone who heard Jesus answer these two young men. They would all recognize that language. However, not just the messianic prophecy, it's the first part of what Jesus said that I wanna draw your attention to. Look at the very first part of verse 22. He says, go back and tell John, what you have seen and heard. Go tell him what you've seen and what you have heard. So let me ask you a question. What have you seen and what have you heard? What have you seen? God do? What have you heard from his word? What have been the moments where he has spoken into your life? You've been reading God's word and something happens, or you're listening to a message and something happens, and there's something that you say, listen, this is bigger than anything else I expected today. This has got to be from the spirit of God. It might be an earthquake. It might be a whirlwind. It might be a hurricane, or it might be a still small voice, but God still speaks. 
What have you seen and what have you heard? This phrase is repeated throughout the New Testament so, so much so that I believe it's a, the responsibility of a follower of Jesus to consistently be able to share what have you seen and what have you heard? John chapter three, verse 31, Jesus is speaking. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and what he has heard. Acts chapter four, Peter and John are preaching and teaching in the name now of a resurrected Jesus. They have been allowed by the spirit of God to do miracles, to perform miracles, to do amazing things. And the people in Jerusalem say, listen, you guys have got to stop. Y'all have got to stop doing this. You can't continue to preach in this name. And look what they say in verse 19 of Acts four, Peter and John answered them and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. It's greater than you. It's greater than these circumstances. It's greater than your threats. It's greater than disease. It's greater than tragedy. It's greater than anything else. We cannot help but speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. First John one verse, uh, verse three keeps it going says that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. As a follower of Jesus today, let me ask you these questions. Come on. What have you seen? Think about it for a second. I know you've seen him move. I know if you think about it for just a moment that you also have miracles still happen faith, awe-inspiring faith. What have you seen and what have you heard? Don't forget about the answered prayer. Don't forget about the still small voice as you read the scriptures. Don't forget about the act of kindness or the sacrifice of time or money that changed the person who benefited and it changed you. What about the word from God that you heard from that group leader or that friend and in that moment you knew the spirit of God was speaking to you? What about that marriage that should not have survived that was saved and they're thriving today? What about that story of the bill that was paid and the provision that was given? What about that person, that friend who has cancer and they don't have cancer anymore but is healed? What about the person who didn't used to like you, you prayed for them and somehow you have favor with them now? These are the big and the little miracles of everyday life. And when it comes to the work of God in your life, what have you seen? And what have you heard? We've seen some amazing things as a church. We've heard some amazing things as a church. Even in recent days, there are people who would say they've been healed through the prayers of God's people. Things that there are no explanation for, that the doctors don't have explanation for. Cancer has been taken away. Provision has been made. Amazing things have happened. Even in our midst today, stories that we'll tell, stories that we'll continue to tell of what we've seen and what we've heard. And can I tell you, no one can take away from you what you've seen and what you've heard. In Acts chapter four, they had nothing they could say to, to Peter and John. Nothing they could say to their testimony. The greatest gift the follower of Jesus can give the world is an attentiveness and a focus on Jesus so that we can continually be telling others what we've seen and what we've heard, especially when it appears that things aren't going quite so well. And I wanna qualify some of these statements for some of you, because I know that life happens. And some of you would say, that your problem exactly with even what I'm saying today 
is what you've seen and what you've heard. Some of you deal with chronic illness or your spouse does, and it appears to be just ruining portions of your life. Some of you have been betrayed or lied to or cheated on. Some of you have watched loved ones suffer and die painful deaths. You've had friends whose lives ended in their prime. Some of you have loved ones who deal with dementia or Alzheimer's. Most of your families have been touched by cancer or some other kind of disease. And some of you are thinking, I'm so tired of coming here and hearing that God is great and God is good. And I'm tired of hearing it because of what I've seen and heard. I know I talk to you. We email, we talk on the phone with people in this church and people in this community all the time. And I know you struggle because of what you've seen and heard. But can I tell you something about that list? That list didn't come from the church. That list came from me. That list came from my family. And I'm here to tell you, to testify today that I have heard and seen some difficult things. But I know a God who is greater. And I know a Jesus that can bring everything under his authority. The key is where your focus lies. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two says this. Looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith. The Bible that I study from, and maybe you memorize it this way, says fixing our eyes on Jesus. And whenever you say fixing in the South, you gotta tell people what you're talking about because fixing can mean all kinds of things, right? I'm, I'm fixing to have a spell. You know, I'm fixing to open a can. I'm fixing to go somewhere, but fixing your eyes, looking at Jesus. But can I tell you something about this word? It doesn't just mean to just look at him. The Greek word aphoraho that's used in this passage doesn't just mean even to look intently at him. It actually means to stop looking at everything else and then you'll be able to see him distinctly. I remember the 90s. Anybody remember the 90s? I, was, I did some of my best work in the 90s. It was awesome. High school, so cool. And, and our, do you remember those little things? It would be like a, a piece of paper or a canvas with like 10,000 dots on it. You remember this? And if you stared at a dot, a picture would magically appear. You remember these things? They'd like pop out. All the students are like, what in the world? This is so weird. This, you guys are, this wasn't in Stranger Things, but just, just listen. So in my town, in the mall, there was actually a, it was a gallery of these things. I mean, not a gallery of like Picasso or Monet or even Prince of those people. It was a gallery of 3D drawings, a gallery of dots on the wall. So what do you do with that? Well, I would take Angela on dates there. It was awesome. We'd just go and, you know, stare at the wall. And she would look at the wall. We, she would look at a picture and I would look at a picture. We'd be looking at the same picture. And she'd say, do you see it? Sure. Yeah, I see it. It's the Statue of Liberty. 
It's a tiger. What are you talking about? What are you looking at? None of these pictures are the Statue of Liberty. Why is it that you can't? I could never say I was horrible at that thing. Why? Because my eyes are darting all over the place and I'm looking at so many different things. People would walk by outside the store and I'm looking at them. And if you keep moving your eyes around and trying to come back, you're never able to see the picture. But if you'll stop looking at everything else and if you'll focus on him alone, somehow you'll be able to see his work in your life and what he's up to, even in the most difficult and chaotic and confusing of moments. Look at what the whole passage says. Look at the whole picture. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you have any idea what that means? It means that there is no circumstance that is not under the authority of Jesus. Don't let the enemy blind you today. Don't let the enemy deafen you today. Don't let the enemy numb you today. Don't let the depression be greater. Don't let the anxiety be greater. Don't let the grief be greater. The sin is not greater. So don't let the shame or the guilt be greater. But remember that Jesus is risen today and that he is greater. And there is no single aspect of your life that he doesn't want to bring under his grace, under his mercy, and under his loving authority. That's what he has for you. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. He's seated at that right hand today when all hope is lost and you feel like throwing in the towel. Don't focus on the circumstances. Focus on Jesus. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I just want to spend just a couple of moments in prayer today. If I could give you the the so what of the last 30 minutes of of teaching. It would be for every single one of us to take time every single day to recalibrate our lives and to focus on Jesus. Even right now, some of you walked in here with heavy burdens, heavy guilt, heavy shame, heavy depression, heavy anxiety, heavy circumstances. Would you just push all those things to the side and focus on Jesus. Remind yourself that he's greater. Remind yourself that he is good. That his mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. That his love endures forever. And that his grace is greater than all your sin. If I could give you a so what today, I, I would encourage you every day this week, every day this week to wake up and let the first thing from your mind and maybe even on your lips out loud is to say, Jesus, you're in charge. And maybe the courageous among us today would pray another prayer 
would say, God, would you speak to me? I want to hear from you. And then just be still. Just be silent. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we want to give you this moment, this opportunity as we do each and every week to just tell you that he loves you. That no matter how bad you feel about yourself or unworthy you feel, he's greater than that too. Today, if you would pray and call out to him as your savior, as your rescuer, he would call you his own. Just in your own words, from your heart to his, just say, God, it's not that I hear you audibly, but I'm believing you still speak because there's something inside of me just stirring right now. And God, I've never put my faith and trust in the one who died on the cross for me, shed his blood for my sins. And so today, in this moment, I do that. I give my life to the one who gave his life for me and who's resurrected for me today. God, teach me what it is to walk with you. If you're here today and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you received a card when you came in. Would you fill that out and let us know? You can bring it to one of our prayer team members on either side of the stage. Afterwards, you can take it to our help center. You might say, you know what? That was kind of quick. I I have some questions. I want to talk to somebody about this before I leave. We would love, love, love to talk with you and help you understand to the point that you would like so that you could put your faith and trust in Jesus today. Father God, you still speak. You still do miracles. God, you've moved mountains. I believe you'll do it again. God, would you do it continually? Would you help us to be people who are constantly before you, constantly silent before you, so that we can hear you speak and help us to recognize not just the big stuff, but the little stuff along life's way and acknowledge you as we go and share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen.